This is the One Verse Podcast, where we liberate scripture from religion one verse at a time. Welcome to another episode of the One Verse Podcast. I am Jeremy Myers. Beginning today, we're looking at the fourth day of creation found in Genesis 1, 14 through 19. We're going to see today why probably God did not create the sun, moon, and stars on the fourth day of creation. Most scholars don't think so anyway. And, uh, you know, that's probably not what Moses was talking about at all after all. So uh, hang out, spend some time with me. We'll see what Moses was teaching in these six verses on the fourth day of creation. By the way, I want to thank KJ7 Daily Miracles for an excellent review on iTunes. Uh, KJ7 Daily Miracles writes, I look forward to every episode. I'm learning so much in recommending your podcast to friends and family. You strike a perfect balance of wisdom and hope. Well done. Hey, well, thank you. That's very encouraging. I really appreciate it. Thank you for the review. And most especially, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for recommending the podcast to friends and family. I hope they listen to it and they learn as much from it as you are. Hey, and uh, this episode of the One Verse Podcast is brought to you by Theology.fm. I hope you've had a chance to go over and take a look at that. If you have, you'll notice that it's another podcast hosted by me. And uh, I am influenced, greatly influenced, by a lot of great preachers, pastors, teachers, podcasters, authors. And I'm working with some of them to get some of their audio, their sermons, their podcasts, sort of on an online, on-demand Christian radio station. So uh, I think there's four episodes up there now. You can go listen to them. And uh, I hope you'll subscribe to the podcast over there as well. You can also find it on iTunes at theology.fm. So with that out of the way, got a lot to cover today. Let's dive in and look at Genesis 1, 14 through 19. So as I dive in today, I do want to give you a warning. I'm covering Genesis 1, 14 through 19 in three parts. Uh, I really did want to try to do them all in one, but as I got studying, got researching, I realized it divided up into three nice sections, and each part is sort of self-contained, so I decided to just do three parts. That's still averaging two verses each, which is uh, better than my one-verse average leading up till now. Uh, The thing is, though, and here's my warning, today's part, part one, sort of summarizes the views and perspectives you might hear from people who try to explain this text so that it fits with science. And uh, since I don't think Genesis 1 contains a scientific reading, a scientific explanation, I don't think that that scientific reading is the best way to understand Genesis 1. Uh, I don't think it is what Moses was saying. Therefore, I don't think that that reading is the literal reading. But uh, since that is what you will often hear in sermons from some pastors and read in commentaries from some scholars, I don't just want to ignore it. I don't want you to think I'm not aware of those uh, arguments, those views. In fact, uh, full disclosure, I used to believe them myself. 
Um, so I'm very aware of them, but, and I, I want you to know how to respond to them. I want you to know what the arguments are. I want you to be aware of them. So that's what we're going to cover today in part one. And we'll also be looking at some of the text and what Moses was saying about the text and, and uh, three purposes that God gave these lights, the sun, moon, and stars in, in the sky. So uh, that's what we're going to be doing today. It's going to be a little bit more on the scholarly side of things. I generally tried to keep my teaching fairly practical, down to earth, and uh, applicable to you and your life. But today's going to be a little more on the scholarly side of things. So if that's not your forte, if that's not your bread and butter, listen, feel free to skip today's episode. I'm not going to be offended. Go ahead, skip it. You don't need to listen to it if you don't really uh, care about all that sort of stuff. Uh, Next week, we'll dive into the text again and look at what Moses was saying. So that will be helpful for you. Now, you're, you're in good company if you do that. If my wife is listening... You can skip this episode as well. Uh, I'll see you tonight for dinner. <laughs> um, and if you want to, if you want to join my wife and skip this episode as well, no hard feelings. Listen, it, it's fine. I, I completely understand. And uh, you also are invited for dinner. <laughs> uh, so uh, if, if you're if you're gonna head out here, that's fine. We'll see you next week for part two. So if you're gonna stick around, though, um, don't say I didn't warn you. <laughs> Uh, so here, here's Genesis 1.14, and it's the um, 1.14 through 19. This is the fourth day of creation. And actually, um, this is the longest explanation of a day of creation we get so far. The sixth day will be longer, but that's because it contains the pinnacle of, crea- of, of the creation week, which is the creation of mankind. But um, what we've seen, and just sort of by way of review, remember that in Genesis 1.2, the creation, or the world, I should say, is uh, the pre-created state of the world is in a condition of chaos. It's described as being formless and empty. And what we've seen so far is that God has set out to reverse those two descriptions. He, the first three days of creation are designed to reverse that uh, state of being formless. And so on the first three days of creation, he forms things. And then on the second three days of creation, he uh, reverses that that word of being empty. And so he fills what he formed. And I put it up before, but the days are parallel. Day one is parallel to day four, so that what he formed on day one, he fills on day four. And uh, that pattern continues throughout. So day two, parallel to day five, and day three, parallel to day six. So we've seen that. I don't need to spend much more time on that. Another thing, though, that we've seen over and over is that Moses is not writing, nor did he intend to write, a scientifically accurate account of creation. I've said it before, let me say it again. Trying to read Genesis 1 as a scientific account is not the literal reading of this text, because that is not what Moses intended when he wrote it. I'm convinced of that. Instead, Moses was writing a theologically accurate account about how the God of the Bible was better than the gods and goddesses of the surrounding nations, religions, and cultures, such as those of Egypt that the Hebrew people had just left, or those of the Canaanites that they were anticipating upon encountering when they entered into the Promised Land, or uh, even those of Babylon. Remember, Abraham, he came from the region of Babylon, and so uh, the Israelite people from the very foundations, from from when God called Abraham, Abram, out of Ur to follow him, uh, he he was influenced, the Hebrew people were influenced from, from 
from the Babylonian gods and goddesses that were worshipped there. So I've talked about that before, and we will see that a lot more in next week's episode when we continue to study these verses. But um, l- let me just read this text, and then we're going to see a few, few more things about it. Uh, Genesis 1, 14 through 19 says this, Then God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night. And let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light to the earth. And it was so. Then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light to the earth and to rule over the day and over the night, and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the fourth day. Okay, so from a real surface level reading of the text, um, This is the day that God created the sun, moon, and stars. But uh, sort of as I hinted before, this may not be the best reading of the text. Among scholars, and for every episode, I consult 30 or 40 commentaries along with journal articles, a bunch of other things. uh, And the majority opinion among scholars, and I have uh, links to these, some of these uh, commentaries, scholars in the show notes, Uh, most people believe that the sun, moon, and stars were actually created along with the heavens and the earth back in Genesis 1-1. So really even before the first day of creation began. And uh, that would then account for how there could be light and darkness prior to day four, uh, which is the text I just read to you. So so that's what most scholars, both Christian and Jewish, believe. Uh, that the sun, moon, and stars were created back in Genesis 1-1. And then just here, what's going on here then in verse 4 is not that they were created, but that they were given their proper role or assigned their proper functions in the way that God wanted to order and organize the world for humankind. Now, you might say, yeah, but in the text uh, it says that God made two great lights. And you might say that, you know, there in verse 14, God it says, and God said, let there be lights. Yes, it does say that, but I have to tell you, uh, these are somewhat mm, suspect translations in the English. The, the, the terms that, that Moses uses here for God create, let there be, then God made, uh, these are very different, or somewhat different, I should say. The text is not similar to the other statements of creation, which we find in the previous three days. Um, so when when God uh, creates the the uh, calls forth the earth or creates the plants or whatever, the the statement of creation, the statement "Let there be" or "God made." Uh, is different than what is used here. And so that's why a lot of commentators, and Moses, since he's indicating this, that's why a lot of commentators and scholars think that uh, the sun, moon, and stars were created before. And the point of the text here is not to say that the sun, moon, and stars were created here or now, but rather to signify how the sun, moon, and stars are being used in God's creation and primarily that God himself is in charge of them. He has control over them. That's going to be a huge theme, a huge point in the next two episodes when we continue to look at Genesis 1, 14 through 19. 
So, um, no, but we do. I do want to talk a little bit about that today. But before we do that, I want to get into what Moses was not saying in this text. Um, again, Moses was not trying to give a scientific explanation for how the sun, moon, and stars exist. And because if he was, right? Listen, if he was, Moses is terribly, horribly wrong. Do you remember what we learned about? The firmament back in Genesis 1 6. Uh, the word that is used there refers in other places in Scripture to some sort of hard shell or dome. It was thought to hold back the waters above. The ancient people believed that the waters were a big, there's a big ocean up there, and that's where rain came from. And from the windows of heaven, God opened the windows of heaven and allowed water to pour through, and that was rain. And so somehow the waters were held back, and so they sort of imagined this big dome, hard shell up there that held back the waters. And uh, the Mesopotamian belief was that the sun, moon, and stars were inside this hard shell in the sky, uh, actually just the sun and the moon, and the stars were engraved on the surface of the shell. And then the shell itself, what they believed, the shell itself rotated around the earth. And they thought the earth was flat. And so it had this shell and sort of it rotated around a stationary flat earth. And that's what caused the sun and the moon and the stars to move across the sky. Now, obviously, that is completely contrary to science. But if you read what Moses describes here, That is the most straightforward, literal reading of the text. Even if some some uh, commentators uh, like to take this word firmament and understand it as expanse. And so it's not a hard shell, it's just an area, a region, an expanse in the sky. But even if you take it that way, just this expanse... Uh, you know, maybe it's this big cloud layer or layer of ice or who knows what up there, and that's what Moses was describing. Uh, that still doesn't help us when we come to Genesis 1, 14 through 19, for the text is clearly saying that whatever the firmament is, whether it's this hard shell or just this expanse, this cloud cover up there, whatever the firmament is, God placed the sun, moon, and stars in the firmament. It's what it says here. And so no matter how you understand that word firmament, that is a major problem for the scientific reading of Genesis 1. Because uh, as Genesis 1-6 says, the firmament is lower than the waters above. The firmament separates the waters above from the waters below. So in in order, you have the waters below, then you have sort of the sky, then you have uh, the firmament or the expanse, and then you have the waters above. And since we see here in, in, in the text before us that God placed the sun, moon, and stars in the firmament, or at least the sun and moon in the firmament, well, that would mean that they were lower than this cloud cover. They were lower than this expanse. They would be closer to the earth than the waters above. And that makes no scientific sense whatsoever. We all know from science today that the sun, moon, and stars are way higher, way above the sky, way above the cloud cover, way above. And there's no, there's no pool, ocean of water up there being held back by anything. Uh, and, and the sun, moon, and stars is way beyond, in case of the stars, millions of light years beyond any sort of cloud cover, any sort of uh, expanse or firmament that might be up there, right? So, uh, again, you can't have a literal, straightforward, scientific reading of this text. You can have 
a literal, straightforward reading of the text, theological reading of the text. But as soon as you try to get what Moses describes here to match with any sort of science, whether it's the science now or the science of uh, 400, 500, 1,000 years ago, it just, it just doesn't fit. That's why it is so much better uh, to just not even deal with the problem and recognize that Moses wasn't trying to write, nor God was intending to inspire a scientific explanation for how the universe came into existence. Because if so, you're left with major problems, major errors in this text. Uh, it's much better. This is a theological explanation. The best approach, as with every other verse in Genesis 1, is, is not, don't even try to make a futile attempt to fit these verses with science. Instead, uh, read the text the way Moses intended, the way God inspired it. And we, we can see what this was by seeing what Moses wanted the Hebrew people to know, what Moses was describing to the people. And that's what we're, we're going to just turn to look at quickly today in our remaining time is this threefold purpose of the sun, moon, and stars. Uh, this threefold purpose here in the text uh, is indicated by the phrase, let them be. It's, it's repeated three times, and uh, this shows us the threefold purpose, the three purposes of these lights that God placed in the sky. Now, we know they're up in the universe now. Uh, back then, they thought they were in the firmament. Again, that's not the issue. The issue is, what are they for? And what they were for then is what they are for now. That still remains true. And that is what the text teaches us. So, first, uh, the lights in the firmament are to divide between day and night, between light and darkness. Now, again, that's sort of strange because light and darkness already divided between day and night since day one. But uh, since day four is parallel to day one, Moses is presenting these lights as sort of the functionaries. Um, They control, they rule the day and night, the light and darkness. And we talked about all that back in day one, so, um, and even a little bit more today. But uh, Moses is just introducing them here. Again, probably they already existed, but he's introducing them here because they fill, and they guide, and they rule. They are the functionaries that guide and rule the function that was created on day one. So, so that's the first function, the first purpose of the lights, to divide between day and night, between light and darkness. All right, the second then is that they are to serve as signs and seasons. It says uh, to mark off days and years. All right, well, that, that makes sense. We, we know that the sun and the stars change with the seasons, sort of their trajectory or their location even across the uh, sky. And that makes sense. And we also know that the lights in the sky, like the moon, help us mark off months. Um, The lights, obviously, the sun rising and setting, help us mark off the days. And and, uh, both things together, along with the movement of the stars, help us mark off the years. So that'll make sense. Uh, The seasons, by the way, the word seasons there refers not only to the four seasons of the year, you know, spring, summer, fall, winter, but uh, more specifically to the annual holidays and festivals of the Jewish calendar. The the Hebrew word, um, it's used 160 times in the Pentateuch, the the books of Moses, five books of Moses, and every single time, every single time, of all 160 times, it is used to refer to a Jewish festival or a time of celebration. So it's used here as well, and it just makes sense that that is really what the word means. Not so much seasons, the four seasons, but the, the, the celebrations, the festivals of the Jewish calendar, the Jewish holiday schedule. 
Uh, what about the word signs, though? A lot of people have been tripped up by this. They, uh, when they see the word signs, they sort of think of stars and the, 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 the zodiac sign. You know, what's your sign sort of a thing. And uh, in ancient times, uh, just like now, they did use the zodiac. Zodiac's very ancient. And uh, it was credited with controlling human destiny, much like now. That's why people read their, uh, what are those, astrology things or whatever in the newspaper. So, um, and, and the truth is, Scripture does sort of indicate that uh, the stars are sometimes used to foretell important events. I mean, uh, the stars helped the Magi come from the East. The three, you know, not three wise men, but however many there were, they came from the East because why? They saw the star. Star of the house of David. And so uh, there was a star, a sign in the heavens foretelling an event, and they saw it and they came. And there's other uh, similar examples in in other places in Scripture. Uh, But the thing is, is I don't think that's necessarily what Moses meant. I don't think he wanted to give credit to the stars or signs or anything like that. Of course, even, even when those are used, it's because God placed them there. God used them. Uh, but but here, uh, Moses is, again, using, we shouldn't understand it that way. This, Moses isn't talking about the zodiac. Moses is using a, a different word for signs uh, than what was commonly used in similar cultures and languages. Um, the word Moses used, it's ot, ot in English anyway, and it has a more neutral sense uh, than, you know, zodiac signs, something like that. Um, it, it shows that the stars are not divinities to be worshipped, but were creations of God that invite us to worship him. Uh, we see this even more clearly when we look at how this word signs, this, this neutral signs is used elsewhere in scripture. It's often used, for example, to refer to things that remind people about God and his work in the world. Um, so, so signs are like reminders to us. Uh, an example, like uh, up in Genesis 9-12, we're going to see the rainbow. God sends this rainbow after the flood. And in Genesis 9:12, God says that the rainbow is given as a sign or a reminder of the covenant that God makes with Noah that God will never, ever send another flood upon the earth. So every time you and I see a rainbow, it's a sign, it's a reminder of that promise to us. Uh, in Exodus 31, God is speaking of the Sabbath, and he says the Sabbath is a sign or a um, a symbol, it's a, a reminder to Israel of their relationship with God. Okay, so that's how I understand the word sign here in Genesis 1. Uh, the sun, moon, and stars are to serve as reminders to us of God's love, his power, his commitment to uh, guide us and take care of us. Right. So, so that's uh, the, the second function, to serve as signs for the seasons and days and years and months to mark things off. All right, third and finally then, the sun, moon, and stars are to serve as lights upon the earth. And that makes sense as well. It doesn't require a whole lot of explanation. The sun, moon, and stars, they give light. Of course, um, as mentioned earlier, you know, the light was already there. That was day one. And so again, this is just the functionary. God is uh, instituting the functionary, the sun, moon, and stars, over the already existing function of light. My professor from Moody Bible Institute, John Walton, has a great book on this, and that's linked to in the show notes. It's called The Lost World of Genesis 1. I highly recommend it. He, he, he explains all of this in his, in his fantastic book. So uh, that's, that's uh, Genesis 1, 14 through 19. It's not a scientific uh, treatise on the creation of the sun, moon, and stars. Even if it was, it would be horribly wrong. So um, it's much better to see it as a theological explanation. 
about the function of the sun, moon, and stars. And then when we read it that way, we see that it is very correct, absolutely correct, uh, ever since the beginning of time all the way up till now. Uh, The text tells us that God is the provider of days and months and times and seasons. God is preexistent. The heavenly lights, uh, they're not gods that compete with Yahweh. They are created by God to remind us to worship him. Remind us of his power and his skill. So that's all I'm going to say about this today. Next week... We're going to go to part two of Genesis 1, 14 through 19, and we will look specifically at what Moses wanted the Hebrew people, the Hebrew audience to understand, and how Yahweh was different and better than the gods and goddesses they had heard of in Egypt, and that they would encounter in Canaan, and that even their ancestor Abraham had known of when he was in Ur of Babylon. Really hope you, you, you come for that study. It's going to be so important to see the differences, uh, this polemic that Moses is writing against the various gods. Because, you know, the questions that they faced about the gods and goddesses of their day are often very, very, very similar to the questions you and I face with the issues, with the politics, with even other religions that we might face today. Those truths are unending, those truths are eternal, and those truths help us understand how to read Genesis 1, 14 through 19. Hey, you know, and in preparation for that, if you have any questions about anything I've said today, you can go leave a comment or question over at redeeminggod.com slash Genesis 1, 14 through 19. And then I'm adding something to the end because I've got three parts. It's just a, a dash and then P1. And of course, part two will be P2 and part three will be P3. But uh, so it's Gen- uh, redeeminggod.com, Genesis 1, 14 through 19, P1. And uh, by the way, down there at the bottom, if you prefer to leave a voice message, you can do that as well. There's a little green button that says start recording. Just click that. And uh, if, you're, if your computer or your smartphone or whatever has a, a microphone, then you can just record your message and I will get it and uh, play it. Play it live on a future episode of the One Verse Podcast and then respond to your question that way as well. I want to thank you for listening. Hope you join us next time as we look at Genesis 1, 14 through 19 again in part two. And hey, if you appreciated the show, if you appreciated this podcast, would you go leave a review at iTunes? I'd really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. See you next time when we look at part two of Genesis 1, 14 through 19.